Man, you thought the Iliad was depressing. Welcome back to Troy and the Trojan War. Today we are talking about Euripides' Troyades, the Trojan women. And, yeah, this one's a downer. Like, probably one of the most single depressing things I have ever read. Like, with the possible exception of maybe Lamentations in the Bible, and maybe that last scene from Goethe's Faust. Like, this is a doozy. Um, and once again, we should definitely be paying attention to the context here. We should be paying attention to the Homeric references, which are, you know, the whole text in this story about all of those women weeping and watching basically the last vestiges of Troy be destroyed. Um, but we should also keep in mind the context from the perspective of the Greeks who are actually listening to this play. Um, Euripides is writing the Troyades during the Peloponnesian War as the Athenians are on the verge of making their decision about whether or not to make their, you know, in hindsight, ill-advised trip to Sicily. Um, Euripides is seeing the demos sort of having a lot of discussions, making a lot of sort of inquiries and challenges and counter-proposals and all that usual bureaucratic nonsense, as well as possibly or very well being led by the nose by Alcibiades, that guy who, as we know here in, you know, 2022, is going to turn out to be a traitor and a monster and totally lead the Athenians to ruin. Um, Euripides especially is probably looking at all this discussion and thinking to himself that this is a very unnecessary battle in what is proving to be a very protracted and not especially glorious war between the Athenians and Spartans. You'll remember from our discussion before that the Peloponnesian War is well after the Greco-Persian War. This is when, you know, Athens and Sparta are at each other's throats because they are frequently at each other's throats. Um, but it's also very clear that this stalemate between the Athenians and the Spartans is not going where, anywhere anytime soon. The Athenians have the superior navy, which, as we keep emphasizing, is absolutely the only way to get around in ancient Greece with any real effectiveness. But the uh, Spartans, as we well know, have the by far the best army. Their hoplites are basically undefeatable because of their rigorous training procedures and their really heavy armor. So the Athenians cannot, in fact, invade Sparta because if they do, they'll get thoroughly trounced by the Spartan army. The Athenian, but the Spartans cannot, in fact, successfully invade Athens because every time that they do, the Athenians can just get on their ships and right away or potentially harass them as they travel. Um, it's a stalemate. It's been a stalemate for probably several years at this point. Nothing is happening in this war and everybody is at this point questioning why this war is going on at all. So for Alcibiades to be suggesting that we need to make not just an aggressive posture in this war, but in fact send all of those ships which are protecting Athenian shores far, far away to the Sicilian shores in an attempt to get allies, i.e. possibly just conquer the whole territory to start with, this seems really foolish on a number of levels. But Alcibiades is really hot and really attractive and really capable of convincing people. Very persuasive, that Alcibiades guy. Um, so Euripides is basically watching his city fall into this trap. And Euripides, we should remark, is absolutely right here. Um, this is an enormous boondoggle. Like, the entire bit where they're going off to Sicily, which they do in fact do, despite Euripides' protests and the protests of many other sort of 
people in Athens with, you know, significant foresight here, the whole thing turns into a disaster. Um, very few of the ships are going to come home. Very few of the men are going to come home. This is going to be the decisive blunder in the Peloponnesian War that will basically put the Athenians into the Spartans' hands for good. Now, obviously, Euripides doesn't know for sure that any of that is going to happen. He does not have the sort of foresight um, that we, you know, sitting here 2,000 years after the fact, definitely have the ability to see. Um, but he knows a bad call when he sees one. He recognizes that this is a bad decision. And the entirety of the Trojan women, much as it is ostensibly about, you know, all those ladies at the end of Troy lamenting the destruction of the city, the death of their loved ones, and also recognizing that their lives are about to take a very dark turn for the worse, as we'll discuss, um, as much as this is about them, Euripides is very much using this very Homeric scene and even this very Homeric language. Like, note the setup here is almost a beat-for-beat beat parallel for a lot of what's happening at the very end of, of Iliad 24. He's using this to talk about his situation, the current events at the time. He is using a Homeric setup, Homeric language, Homeric characters to talk about the present to talk about the political situation in Athens at this moment and to question it. Um, so this is essentially a play that is even more anti-war than Homer's Iliad was. Because while Homer, you'll notice, glorifies the actual business of combat, seems to revel in the gore and the violence, notice that nobody dies on stage in this play. Um, this is pretty typical of Greek tragedy. Most of the action is typically off stage. But notice that the only actual violence that does occur, the only death, the only, you know, like, fight between two people is a bunch of grown men throwing a small child off the battlements. Like, there is zero honor in what's going on here. And even Talthybius, the one representative of the Greek forces that we tend to see here, besides Menelaus's grief, uh, appearance when, you know, Helen is, Helen's fate is being decided. Even Talthybius is not on board with most of what the Greeks are deciding here. It's significant that all of these decisions are taking place off stage, happening behind closed doors, and happening with characters who we never see and never interact with. Keep that in mind as we go forward. Um, but let's look at the actual play itself, because I do, in fact, want to take apart quite a few of these speeches and talk about the details in some detail here. Um, once again, we're in literary mode. Hooray! Finally, we get to not do a PowerPoint and not do just straight-up history, uh, although we'll be back on the history bus for our discussion of Rome next time. Um, so we have our cast. We do, in fact, have a couple of gods, which is exciting. That's not always the case in Greek tragedy. Frequently, the gods are just happening off off screen. Um, but we do get both Poseidon and Athena here, and Poseidon and Athena are sort of discussing and questioning the fate of the rest of the cast. Um, notice that it's Poseidon that opens this discussion as well. Poseidon is our first character to speak. He is basically responsible for the whole um, business of exposition in the prologue, and he and Athena will sort of debate the fates of these characters as we go on. Um, our other characters are mostly women. Um, Hecuba is obviously our leading lady here, although she would have been played by a man uh, most 
female characters in Greek tragedy would have been played by young boys whose voices hadn't broken yet. That is unchanged in the Elizabethan world, at least to my knowledge. Um, generally, women were not allowed to go out into public spaces in the Athenian world especially. Remember, they're terrible misogynists, and they're very protective of their wives and their daughters and so on and so forth. Um, so as a consequence, it's an all-male cast here. It's just beardless boys acting like women in most of these cases. Um, we've also got our chorus. We'll talk about them when we get to them. We've got Talthibius, as we mentioned, and we've got a couple of important Trojan ladies, especially Cassandra, Andromache, and Helen. And then we've got a number of other characters that are bumming around the margins here. Uh, but notice that it's the women who get all the good lines, it's the women who are doing most of the thinking, and it's the women who turn out looking the best. Um, as much as Poseidon is sort of our, like, neutral moral center of this entire text, insofar as he's a god, you know, all of the women generally tend to be more sympathetic in this play. Um, Talthibius is kind of just a functionary. He's basically like an up-jumped messenger who's just here to deliver bad news. Menelaus gets his one scene, but this is not Menelaus at his best. If anything, the emphasis here is that Menelaus is being manipulated by Helen. Um, and Astyanax and the soldiers, well, they either have no lines or just die straight up. So it's the woman to show here, which is significant as well. Notice, as I mentioned in the last discussion, Euripides tends to emphasize the voices of women more than most of the other tragedians. Um, and especially he emphasizes them in an effort to make their plight compassionate. Um, looking at women seems to be the default stance for Euripides, largely borrowing from Homer here, because remember, it's Andromache and Hecuba and Helen um, who basically get to like characterize the loss that is Hector's death at the end of the Iliad. Um, Euripides is borrowing from Homer in his style and structure here, as well as the sort of subject matter that he's talking about. Um, but enough preface, let's actually jump into this. We start with Poseidon, and he very much gives us the sort of setup here. Remember that the Greek stage is not equipped with elaborate plots or sets or anything. Um, so if you want to know what's going on, you're going to have to have someone show up and literally just narrate it to the audience, which Poseidon does. Poseidon tells us that, in fact, he is very fond of Troy. So this is a different Poseidon from the one that we've seen in, in Homer. Remember that Poseidon in the Iliad was very much pro-Greek. He was favoring the Greeks against the Trojans, and in fact shows up and even fights on their side, even when Zeus has told everybody that they're not allowed to participate. This is a different Poseidon. He starts by saying, Never have I lost my fondness for this Phrygian city of Troy. Which, remember, we're emphasizing the Phrygian here because Troy is associated with the Persians. This is usually a move to sort of signal villainy in the Greek uh, in the, or at least in the contemporary Athenian world. Um, but here it's less obvious. Euripides is obviously playing for compassion rather than sort of enmity. Um, he's emphasizing that the individuals do not suffer for the crimes of the Phrygian nation generally. But notice, too, that Poseidon gets a little nostalgic here. No, not since the day that Phoebus and I, with a blind and plummet, threw up around her a stone girdle of towers. But look at her now, smoldering and wrecked by the Argive spear. Um, so Poseidon is clearly Team Troy here, and Poseidon is even getting a little wistful and nostalgic about this. Like, even the gods recognize that they were invested in Troy, which is important. 
It's something that Hecuba is going to bring up pretty frequently throughout this play. Like, where were the gods after all the sacrifices that Troy made, after all of the, you know, hymns that they sang? Like, why didn't the gods protect the Trojans when the Trojans have been such good, like, celebrants of them? Um, Poseidon at least does recognize this here in the prologue. Um, then he goes on to tell us exactly where we are in time. The wooden horse was wielded to Troy, the city was sacked, and now we are trying to figure out what to do with all of these ladies. Um, all of the women have been taken captive after all of the men have been slain, and now it is about parceling them out. Remember that women are functionally prizes for the Greeks here, and taking a particularly honorable woman is a good way of guaranteeing your own honor. Um, spoiler alert and trigger warning here, we're going to be talking a lot about women in really precarious situations. No rape will occur over the course of this play because, again, Greek tragedy usually keeps its action off stage. but there is the threat of rape for sure, there is discussion of past rapes, and there is definitely hanging over this entire play the fact that all of these women are likely to be raped in the near future unless they happily die first. It's gonna get ugly, folks. The tragedy is accompanied by some pretty horrific violence and some really nasty setups. Now, Euripides is at least being sympathetic about this. Like, this is not, you know, rape for fun, as you will find in some of the Greek myths. This is not even, you know, rape as a way of life, as we see in some of the Iliad and the Odyssey. Um, Homer never really excuses this practice, but he does seem to just accept that it exists. For Euripides, you'll know all of these rapes are awful. Every last one of them. At no point does Euripides excuse rape or just sort of accept it. The worst that Euripides will do, as far as his occasional misogynistic territory, is he will pretty strongly argue for the death of Helen. Um, like, Hecuba is going to give us a whole speech about how Helen should have committed suicide and how Helen now should be executed by her husband for her perfidiousness. That's as bad as Euripides is going to get, and that's because Helen is very differently characterized here than we saw in Homer. But generally speaking, all of these women in their rough situation, all of the horrible things that are about to happen to them, Euripides is emphasizing them specifically because he wants you to be aware of all of the suffering that is going on here. He is trying to steer Athens away from making the same mistakes. So in some sense, he is using these women's horrible situation as political points, but political points specifically because he doesn't want to see the same thing repeated. So if you are a little squeamish about this, I do not blame you if you want to turn off this lecture or quit reading the play or whatever. It is a rough thing to talk about. Um, but I also want to emphasize that Euripides, at least, is behaving with a lot more maturity than a lot of the other writers that we've encountered so far are doing. Um, he is way more respectful of this situation and of the women who are going to be abused in these situations. Um, it is a fact of their situation. It is reality for them. Um, and by emphasizing this, by drawing attention to this, Euripides is trying to sort of navigate around this to sort of make the Athenian citizens who are in fact in the process of voting on what to do next to make them keenly aware of the potential consequences of their actions. Um, he is trying to save other women from 
meeting with this fate, in short. Um, he is very much trying to address this issue. And if we look at the real history, none of this is foreign. When the Spartans, in fact, come storming into Athens, you can bet that these horrific scenes that Euripides is invoking from the Trojan War will be repeated. Um, as much as, you know, history typically does not emphasize the plight of the oppressed in these situations, preferring to dwell on the heroic deeds of Alexander the Great or the great legislative prowess of Pericles, you know, keep in mind that all of these moving and shakings, all of these pillagings of islands are usually accompanied by women getting absolutely fucked over, both in the literal sense and in the metaphorical sense. Um, this is an awful, awful situation for women to be in, in short. Um, and on the one hand, we are going to talk about it pretty openly here because it is very key to what Euripides is talking about. I will try to be as sympathetic as I can and to be as sort of respectful as I can of these situations. But again, there's only so much that can be done. At the end of the day, I am a white dude talking about rape. And if that doesn't sit well with you, again, stop listening. Like, I do not fault you for it. I do not shame you for it. You can get through this class without this lecture. It's okay. Um, maybe talk to me about it, when, uh, like, privately if you feel comfortable doing that. Um, but, yeah, like, I'm going to do the best that I can here, but there is no good way to handle this, in short. Um, as much as Euripides, I do respect for his attempts here, and I do think he's doing a lot better than others. By contemporary standards, he's still a far cry from giving this serious subject the gravitas and seriousness that it deserves. Um, but also, this is how we understand the world of the Greeks. So, all that preface aside, let's keep moving. Um, so, Athena and Poseidon actually meet up early on in Poseidon's whole exposition business here. Like, Poseidon tells us about the sack of Troy. Poseidon tells us that, you know, he would have protected Troy except for the fact that, like, Hera and Athena are at his throat because remember that Hera and Athena are the ones very pro-Greek because they were snubbed by Paris and therefore they are supposedly hell-bent on destroying Troy. Poseidon is, it seems, a little resentful about this, and he even emphasizes, you know, that Hecuba especially is in a state of great misery. If you want to see misery at its worst, he says, look at the creature lying there, poor Hecuba, weeping a plethora of tears for a plethora of disasters. Um, and she go, he goes on to list some of her misfortunes. Her daughter Polyxima is murdered secretly. We'll talk about that in its own time. Priam, her husband, is dead. Her children are all dead, except for Cassandra, um, who is supposedly still a virgin. We'll talk about that in its own time. Um, but nonetheless, getting ready to be carried off by Agamemnon, who apparently is just straight up lusting after her. We do not get a really good explanation here, but keep in mind this is also bad news for everyone everybody involved. Um, when Athena does in fact approach, notice that she has changed her tune here. Like Athena has also been hardcore pro-Greek start to finish throughout this, throughout our discussion of the Trojan War, but here we see her first time turning against the Greeks. Um, Will you permit me to address you, she says, and call a halt to our ancient quarrel, you my father's closest kin and a mighty deity so awed among the gods. Poseidon will totally listen to her. Um, she wants to plan with him. About some message from the gods, Poseidon asks, Zeus perhaps, or some other deity? No, about Troy, she answers, where we are standing now. I need your help in a matter that affects us both. 
What? asks Poseidon. Are you jettisoning your former hate, moved to pity, now that Troy is flames and ash? Athena demands that he, like, actually agree before she tells her and find or tells him, and finally she says, I want to make the Trojans whom I hated happy, and the homecoming of the Achaeans a disaster. How you shift from mood to mood, Poseidon responds, plunging from hatred to excess of love. So you haven't heard how my temples and I have been dishonored? I have. How Ajax hauled Cassandra from your sanctuary, and the Achaeans have not done or said a thing, although it was through your power that they took Ilium. That is why I want to punish them. Notice that Athena is turning against the Greeks here. The Greeks have betrayed her in her eyes. Now again, part of this is, you know, gods being gods. Remember from the Iliad, they are pretty untrustworthy and you can't even rely on them to react sensibly in some cases. Remember all those gods kind of sitting around when all of a sudden they all realized that Achilles was kind of flaunting them and dis disrespecting them by dragging Hector's body around and Apollo calls them to order for this. Um, this is happening here, too, to some degree. Athena is mad because her temple, the big temple that Hecuba was sacrificing at in Iliad 5 and 6, has been desecrated. And Cassandra, a virgin who was sanctified to Athena, has been raped, question mark? Um, the text seems pretty ambiguous about how exactly the whole thing between Ajax and Cassandra goes down, but it is usually understood that little Ajax raped Cassandra in the temple of Athena, thus desecrating and violating everything about this. Um, remember that Athena is, in fact, one of the virgin goddesses. She isn't necessarily the goddess of virginity, that's more Artemis' territory, but Athena is specifically unmarried and very deliberately so. It would have been a huge defilement to rape a virgin sanctified to Athena in Athena's own sanctuary. So she is warranted in being pissed off here. And Ajax was way out of line. Like, way, way out of line. Like, we cannot emphasize how badly Ajax messes up here where he, you know, like affronts the gods, affronts Athena. Um, the rape itself is a huge like social taboo and violation. Like I know that we've talked about how rape is relatively acceptable in the Greek world. This would not have been because Cassandra was a virgin, because Cassandra was sanctified. And the fact that Agamemnon is also interested in Cassandra is also something that would have turned heads here and would have been completely inappropriate and totally off limits. Um, so Athena is pissed and Athena is rightfully pissed and she literally asks Poseidon, I want you to wreck their passage home. Like Poseidon, who is apparently Team Troy in this situation, is now being approached by Athena who wants to screw over the Achaeans because of how badly they have mistreated her. How badly they have wrecked her shrine, desecrated her sacred virgin priestess, all while Athena was backing the Greeks this entire time. So notice that Athena is ticked, and Athena is rightfully ticked, and Euripides is kind of pointing to yet another female character who has been seriously wronged in this situation. Athena is correct to be offended here, and Athena is getting her vengeance on the Achaeans by working with Poseidon to make their return home a disaster. Um, so Poseidon agrees, because again, like Poseidon is also kind of pissed at the Achaeans about messing with Troy. Um, and notice, it's really significant to note here, 
that Euripides is starting this whole play, starting this whole discussion with a reminder that all of the Greeks are about to get seriously screwed. Like, this play focuses on the Trojan women. It's literally named the Trojan women, Troyades. Like, that's the primary sort of subject here, but frequently throughout this play, and very much here at the beginning, Euripides is emphasizing the Greeks are also screwed here. Nobody is getting out of this alive. Nobody is going to, quote, win in this war. And even the conquerors are about to get their comeuppance. Um, there are no winners in war is kind of the overall theme here in this play. And as much as all of these Athenians are about to go on this big conquesting, you know, excursion to Sicily, Euripides is very firmly reminding them that as much as it is very likely that they're going to get wrecked and totally lose this whole campaign, even if they win, it's probably going to be at a huge cost. They may tick off the gods and everything will go badly for them in the end anyway. The aggressors are also, at the end of the day, victims. They will also get their comeuppance. Bad things will happen to them as well. And notice how Poseidon concludes this whole section of the prologue. He is a fool, that man who does not stop at sacking cities, but lays temples, waste, and tombs, those sanctuaries of the dead. This is a stark reminder from Euripides to the rest of the Greeks here, that conquest usually ends badly for everyone because it's pretty hard to control a looting army when they are faced with all of these potential riches. You, dis you despoil temples and horrible things will happen to you. You are a fool who does not stop at sacking cities, um, but raiding tombs, raiding temples. Um, this is unholiness and invites retribution. This is capital H hubris, as far as the Greeks understand it. So note what's going on with Hecuba here. Um, throughout this play, she is going to be mourning. Everybody is going to be mourning. Hecuba is going to be mourning the chorus of women. Like, there are two technically, or technically there are two choruses, like the chorus of older Trojan women and the tr chorus of tr uh, younger Trojan women. All of them are going to spend virtually all of this play lamenting. Um, now, on the one hand, I want to sort of point out certain important details in these lamentations. Um, like here in this first section, the lyric monologue, where Hecuba like, basically just gets to sit up and sing all of her lines to the audience. Um, she emphasizes fairly frequently um, that, like, uh, first she blames Helen for all of this, but then also that, like, she's screeching like a mother bird for her young, intoned for you a song most different from the song I used to sing. Um, she emphasizes her own situation, the fact that all of her children are lost. Remember that Priam had, like, 50 sons and 50 daughters. We are down to one now. Only Cassandra has survived from the line of Priam. Um, and as we've seen from the Iliad, and it has been emphasized a number of times, the only survivor in all of this, because Cassandra is about to die as well, is going to be Aeneas. Not from Priam's line at all, but from the greater line of Dardanus, the sort of founder of Troy in the first place. Um, after Hecuba's initial lamentation, her initial monologue, we meet the chorus. 
again. I know that the chorus is kind of a weird thing for us. We are not used to this, but the chorus does function as both like moral center of the play as well as um, sort of echo chamber for the characters to sort of bounce their ideas off of. They reflect what we are supposed to feel at any given moment. And it is significant that the chorus is all ladies here. Um, again, no men in the chorus because all of the chorus are these deprived, totally embattled, totally destitute women. Um, the survivors of the sack of Troy who were all about to be parceled off to various Greek men as prizes for their conquest. Um, again, Euripides is situating the audience behind the chorus and emphasizing that they should feel like the conquered in this situation. Euripides invites everyone in the audience to feel like they have been conquered, to identify with the conquered instead of the conquerors, which, keep in mind, puts them on the wrong foot here in some respect. Remember, these are the Greeks. We won the Trojan War. We heroically like sent all of our menfolk off, and they did all of these great deeds of glory. Not in this play. Euripides is not inviting you to, like, sort of associate yourself with the heroic deeds of Ajax or Achilles or any of these guys, even if they died tragically, Euripides is getting at the soul of what Homer was talking about in the Iliad. Um, remember, a lot of these Greeks have been reading the Iliad forever. This is their bread and butter. They were raised on this stuff. Like, as Plato emphasizes, you know, the values of Homer are getting communicated to the children. They're just growing up in this. But as much as Homer doesn't seem to glorify war, it's pretty easy for you to emphasize only the passages that do. For, you know, the Greeks to sort of get carried away with all the excitement of, you know, Achilles overcoming Hector and the triumph of, you know, Diomedes over Aeneas and so on and so forth, and to sort of lose track of the fact that this is, at the end of the day, a poem about tragedy, a poem about loss, a poem about just senseless destruction, as Zeus's will was done. Um, it's easy to get excited about the moment-to-moment -moment beats of the Iliad without seeing the overall message of the Iliad. So notice that Euripides extracts those beats. They're gone here. Now it is all message. It is all tragedy. Start to finish, the Trojan women is just lamentation and misery. And we are once again sort of thrust into this position where we're forced to see the perspective of the women, the victims, the people who have been taken advantage of, the people who have been conquered and who would now lie at this precipice of uncertainty. Uh, the key here, the setup which the chorus tells us about is that this is the moment when the lots are about to be drawn, as Hecuba announces to us. Um, apparently all the Greeks are sitting in their committees deciding exactly what's going to happen to these various women. Um, and notice that it is down to lots. Like, we're just doing this by dumb luck, it seems. Um, now, to some degree, based on how appropriate, or inappropriate, depending on which perspective you're sort of seeing this from, uh, many of the attributions tend to be, it seems unlikely that they're actually drawing lots. This is just totally random or something, but rather that each person is sort of claiming uh, the various women for themselves, especially since, you know, Cassandra's claiming by Agamemnon is very obviously motivated. Uh, so drawing lots might be a little inappropriate, but notice, too, there are a lot of women here besides the main players. Like, the leader of the chorus, for example, never gets to learn where she's going to go. That's apparently random. Um, so notice the cruelty of this. The fact that none of these women are 
sort of decided upon, that all of their fates are going to be determined by a die roll, effectively. Um, that there is this sort of cruel chance about their fates here. Um, and that it isn't even decided. It isn't even dignified enough for them in many of these cases. You know, Hecuba, Andromache, Cassandra, Helen, we're going to see their fates because they're, of course, the big important ones. But when we're asked, you know, who are you supposed to identify with? Who are you, the audience, supposed to sort of connect to? It's the chorus. And the chorus literally does not have any idea where they're going to go, except that it's going to be horrible. So let's talk about our big players here, because Talthibius fortunately tells us exactly what's going to happen for the rest of the play um, when Hecuba asks him. Now again, Talthibius is basically functioning as a functionary here. He is just wearing, you know, this uniform of the Greek army, as we're told. Um, but he's also kind of embarrassed about the situation. He doesn't want to be here. This sucks for Talthibius. Um, this is a crappy job, going to all the women and telling them what's going to happen, and he is frequently sympathetic to them. He wishes that he could do things differently, but he is unable to change the minds of the powers that be. Um, so keep that relationship in mind here, because remember, between the drawing of lots and the fact that all the big players are you know behind closed doors as far as his play is concerned, uh, our playwright Euripides is very much emphasizing that, you know, all this democratic, you know, committee business happening in the demos is parallel to this sort of faceless body of major Greek heroes who are now deciding these people's fates without any care for their situation. You know, we never see Neoptolemus or Agamemnon or little Ajax or Odysseus, but we hear them referred to often. They are the ones making the decisions for the rest of these women, and these women are just forced to go along with them. I can't help but think that Euripides is pointing out here how cruel this system actually proves to be. He is very much stressing the limits of this form of democracy here, and stressing that it is not representing a vast number of people whose lives are literally going to be torn apart on a whim in some cases. Um, we do not get the chance to identify with Odysseus or to respect Neoptolemus or to, you know, be charmed by Agamemnon's prowess and leadership. No, that's all removed from us. These are just faceless people deciding these fates as though they were the gods or the fates themselves. There is something cruel, something senseless, something impersonal, something just plain mean about all of this. Um, and the only face we do have for this is poor Talphibius, who is kind of caught between a rock and a hard place. Um, as much as he doesn't want to execute those orders, he recognizes that he has no choice but to do that, or they will kill him too. Um, all of our characters here are victims in that sense, even if you are just middle management victims for a like, governing body that is itself just senseless, pointlessly cruel. Uh, but Talthibius tells us what's going to happen. Namely, Agamemnon wants Cassandra. Um, we're told, like, Hecuba immediately assumes that she's just going to be a slave, like she's going to be a slave to Helen or something, um, or rather to Clytemnestra. But Talthibius tells her, no, um, she's going to be his concubine, his secret concubine, because, and I quote, he's shot through with lust for the maiden prophetess. And again, keep in mind, Cassandra is supposed to be sanctified. This horrifies Hecuba. 
not just because it means that her daughter is going to be raped by Agamemnon of all people. Remember Agamemnon, the architect of the Greek side of the Trojan War, the greatest enemy of Troy, but also because this is a huge violation of propriety. Like, the gods are going to be mad about this. And no, you know, Agamemnon will get his comeuppance for this. Um, so Hecuba, in response to Talthybius, responds, you know, Oh, my daughter, throw away those temple keys, cast off those chaplets and those vestiges of your sanctified profession. You are no longer sanctified. That is going to be violated. It would be a greater dishonor, a greater impurity for you to go to Agamemnon in your priestly vestments, because that's a double defilement of both the rank and your situation. Here, at least, if you take off the clothes, the vestments of the priesthood, then at least it's just you being defiled, and the gods will hopefully be a little bit less mad. But it doesn't change the fact that this is a huge, huge violation here. Now, Euripides doesn't seem to mention the rape of Cassandra by Ajax directly. She was just attacked by Ajax. The suggestion here is that is at least most of the time, that Cassandra is still a virgin. Probably to just drive home how tragic and awful the situation is, that Agamemnon is the one culpable for her deflowering here. Um, so whichever way you read it, whether she has been violated by Ajax once before, or whether this is the first time that this is going to happen, it is very much emphasized that this is a huge violation of the natural order. This is a huge middle finger to the gods. This is a huge, horrible violation of Cassandra's own person and her well-being, as well as a defilement of the line of Priam in general. Um, this, too, is a huge destructive act on Agamemnon's part. Um, so Cassandra's going to Agamemnon. We also have Polyxena. Um, Polyxena is apparently the last surviving daughter of Hecuba besides Cassandra and her youngest daughter at that. Um, Chalthibius is a little evasive about Polyxena's fate. Um, he says she's been assigned to serve at the tomb of Achilles, but we're told rather later that she was in fact killed and presented as a human sacrifice at the tomb of Achilles. So once again, we're in human sacrifice territory, and again, especially for Euripides here in the you know classical age of Greece, this would not have been an acceptable sacrifice. Um, to the classical Greeks, this would have been really upsetting. Like, this is outside of the scope of the Iliad, probably within the Trojan cycle, grandly, so, you know, we do expect that to some degree, like, we know that this is the way that this story goes, but just as, you know, all of Achilles' sacrifices of the twelve young Trojan men at Patroclus' tomb is kind of off-putting and is kind of a violation of the divine order and is kind of a middle finger to the gods, so too Polyxena's death here is made out to be the same. This is, once again, the Greeks reveling in their victory, sort of glutting themselves on blood here, and not paying attention to what the gods actually want. This would have offended the gods as well, and probably, to some degree, Achilles' spirit as well. Human sacrifice is not an acceptable practice in even Homeric time, like Homeric's sort of quasi-temporal, quasi-Bronze Age, quasi-archaic world. Um, so this is grotesque. And Hecuba misunderstands him, again, because Talthybius is being pretty evasive. She thinks he's going, she's going to be a lackey at the tomb, that she's just going to serve at Achilles' tomb. 
basically the way that Cassandra served in the, the uh, temple of Athena, though serving in a tomb is way less honorable than serving at an actual like temple. Um, so this is bad, Hecuba thinks, but it's not as bad as it actually is, namely that she is being presented as a sacrifice. Um, she is basically just, you know, on equivalent to bulls and you know, sheep and other sacrifices that would be made to, you know, placate the body of Achilles. So notice, too, that it is Achilles. Achilles, the destroyer of Troy. Achilles who killed Hector. Like, not only is, you know, this a sacrifice and this sacrifice horrible, but at least if she were sacrificed to the gods, there would be some honor in it. No, she is sacrificed to Hecuba's mortal enemy, Achilles. Um, so an even greater tragedy and even greater horror here. Now, as for Hecuba herself, she's apparently going to Odysseus. Not that that matters, because Hecuba is going to be dead by the time that that happens. Cassandra tells us this, and indeed, by the end of the play, Hecuba does seem to die. Um, in the version that I'm using, our, our editor and translator, namely Paul Roche, uh, mentions that it's not explicitly mentioned in the text of the play, but it is very heavily implied, and it is in all likelihood the way that it would have gone down on stage. Hecuba basically collapsing to her, to her knees and dying right there in front of everyone, uh, which is itself kind of a big step. In most tragedies, the deaths do not occur on, on stage. Um, but Hecuba is not excited about the prospect of being with Odysseus. Like, the Odysseus we see here is also a marked distance from the Odysseus we see in the Odyssey and the Iliad. Um, Better that cropped pate of mine, she says, claw my nails through my cheeks. The lot I've drawn makes me slave to that loathsome, perfidious beast, that enemy of every right, a monster who knows no law, a twister with a double tongue who lies and breaks his promises and turns all friendship into hate. This is the Odysseus from the Trojan perspective, namely the Odysseus of Iliad 10, the one who sneaks into armies, army encampments while they're sleeping, and then just straightforwardly murders everyone. This is the Odysseus, the marauder of the Odyssey, not Odysseus, the hero of the Odyssey. Hecuba very much emphasizes Odysseus's unheroicness, the fact that his actions are duplicitous, that he is a master of lies and deceit. He is the odious one that we were told by his sort of maternal grandfather. Like, Odysseus is in fact a terrible person from Hecuba's perspective, and he, she's probably ask, inviting us to question Odysseus's merits as a hero generally. Like, Euripides, remember, he frequently undermines the usual interpretation of the Homeric myths. Um, Euripides frequently innovates on the stories that Homer tells us and changes the values around. Again, you know, much like Plato, and that's why they're sort of lumped together and frequently dishonored together. Um, so it's clear that, you know, Odysseus is also getting some serious shade thrown at him by Euripides here. Um, Odysseus is bad news, and being the slave of Odysseus is even worse than being the slave of many of the other Greeks, because he is so terrible, as far as Hecuba is concerned. Um, but let's skip forward a little bit, because I definitely want to dwell on Cassandra's whole speech, um, because there's a lot of depth there, and we are, in fact, running out of time. Um, so if we go to Cassandra's strophe, her in the... Uh, lyric apostrophe, um, we get a really interesting look at Cassandra, the character. Uh, now, we haven't really run into Cassandra so far, besides the discussion of her life and, and 
Apollodorus way back at the beginning of class. Uh, but Cassandra's claim to fame was that she apparently was supposed to be a priestess of Apollo and rejected that offer, and Apollo cursed her to always tell the truth about the future, but that everyone was always going to disbelieve her. Which kind of makes her one of my favorite characters in all of mythology. Like, this curse is particularly rich. Uh, for thematic discussion and, and sort of detail, and a lot of playwrights and a lot of myth writers have a lot of fun with Cassandra's particular sort of affliction. Euripides is a master, though, and Euripides absolutely draws out in painful detail the irony of what's going on with Cassandra's supposed insanity and the inability of others to take her prophecies seriously. On the one hand, he absolutely draws out the irony. On the other, that irony is usually tragic and usually just underscores and emphasizes the horror of everything that is surrounding Cassandra, both in this play here as well as what's going to happen to her soon. So first off, she apparently comes out of the tents and is insane, like literally has lost her mind. Um, some portrayals of Cassandra have this as being her default state, so it, you know, Ripides is kind of playing with that assumption here. Um, we could read this as being sort of trauma from her rape by Ajax, depending on how you want to sort of take this and which tradition you're working from. Suffice it to say that Euripides is kind of doing this to emphasize again that horrible irony here. Namely that Cassandra comes out thinking that she is being prepared for a legitimate wedding. Um, o Lord Hymenus, she says, bridegroom blessed, and blessed am I about to be matched with a king in Argos, yes. Hymen, you nuptial god, while you, my mother, do nothing but moan and weep for my dead father and dearest fatherland, so I must for myself, for my own wedding, lift up aloft the flaming torch, flashing and flaring in your honor, O Hymen, in your honor, O Hecate, with all the rubrics of light for a virgin's wedding. Now again, it's unclear which tradition Euripides is working with here, whether he wants to sort of highlight um, Cassandra's virginity or alternatively highlight the fact that she is no longer a virgin through that sort of horrific act perpetrated upon her. But in either case, Cassandra's confusion here just serves to underscore how horrible the situation actually is. This is a parody of marriage. This is a sick, fucked up version of marriage. Agamemnon carrying off this virginal priestess to basically serve as his concubine and not even tell his wife about it. Like, he, his relationship with Cassandra is like six kinds of violation here. Um, and it is very much emphasized that this is part of why Clytemnestra gets so mad at him. This is part of why Clytemnestra murders him straight out. Um, his relationship with Cassandra is gross, even by, you know, the otherwise tolerant Greek standards. So Cassandra, like, characterizing this as a true wedding, even goes so far as to chide her mother, why are you not celebrating? Why are you not celebrating for me? Just sort of drawing, again, that horrific parallel here between the expectation and reality. Um, Hecuba herself blames Hephaestus for this. Uh, Hephaestus, you who light up the nuptials of mortals with torches, how cruel of you to parody with flame all the hopes I had so long ago. Hecuba had hoped that Cassandra would be married, and this is not what she had in mind. This sick, twisted, mis 
taken insane ceremony that Cassandra seems to think is true, but is in fact this warped parody of marriage. Um, but notice that Cassandra is apparently aware of the consequences here. Um, as much as Hecuba sort of tells her, you know, our sufferings have not made you sensible. You are still insane, the same as you always were. Cassandra responds, mother, crown me in triumph. Congratulate me in my royal match. Escort me to it. And if you detect a lack of zeal, give me a push. For by Loxus, I swear, I shall be a far more lethal bride than famous Agamemnon, king of the Greeks, ever bargained for. I shall kill him, and in my turn devastate his house, and so avenge my brothers and my father. Notice, Cassandra, as much as she is sort of originally characterized as being insane, sort of singing about this wedding that is a perverse, you know, like, warped version of what weddings are supposed to be. Her invocation of Hymen is sick and twisted. If anything, Cassandra is using this to her own advantage. She recognizes, yes, I go to be married gladly because I know that my marriage will be the thing that destroys Agamemnon and his entire line and household. I shall be a far more lethal bride than famous Agamemnon ever bargained for. I shall kill him and in my turn to devastate his house and so avenge my brothers and my father. Like, Cassandra is, in her own way, a parallel to the Trojan horse here. She is the gift that Agamemnon lusts after, and that gift will in fact destroy Agamemnon. Furthermore, the comparison to Helen is really clear and obvious here. Agamemnon is lusting after this beautiful woman uncontrollably, and it will serve the doom of his house, just as Helen served the doom of Paris and Priam's house. Um, and notice that, like, Cassandra draws this connection explicitly. Let me talk instead, she says, of how our city is more fortunate than the Greeks. Possessed I may be, but I shall rise above my frenzy. For the sake of a single woman and a single passion, the Greeks have thrown away thousands of lives. Meaning, for the sake of Helen, the Greeks destroyed themselves, threw away their young men in battle, destroyed Priam's household. Their oh-so-intelligent commander-in-chief lost what he loved most for something he loved least. Agamemnon gave up Iphigenia, his daughter, for his untrustworthy brother's wife. Uh, yes, he gave up for his brother the jewel of his hearth, his own daughter, all for a woman who was no wise dragged away, but went of her own free will. Uh, Agamemnon sacrificed Iphigenia so he could get back Helen, and Helen was in no way trustworthy or honorable or respectable or worth getting back. He gave away what he loved most for what he loved least. Um, Cassandra is very much drawing home how stupid this whole war in fact was and how its stupidity will lead to the destruction of everyone involved. Again, Euripides is very much drawing attention to the pointlessness of the Iliad and not the glorious feats of arms, not the heroic deeds. None of that is on display here. No, it was stupid and it was pointless. Agamemnon gave up something that was very valuable to him in exchange for something that was worthless. There was no point to any of this. It was all just a bunch of stupid, idiotic, dick-waving Greek men fulfilling this idiotic, stupid obligation, which was itself made because all of them couldn't keep their 
shitting their pants. They were all lusting after Helen, and thus we come to this point. Agamemnon's house destroyed, Priam's empire destroyed, everyone miserable or dead. By the banks of the Scamander their armies died, she continues, in, in battles for which neither their own borders nor their towering cities were at stake. Remember, we talked extensively in the Iliad about Hector being in the right because Hector understands why he's fighting. He's fighting to defend his homeland. He's fighting to defend his family. He's fighting to defend his borders, his city. But the Greeks were not. Cassandra draws attention to that as well. There's no point in the Greek invasion. War should only be conducted on your own shores. And she emphasizes this as well. As to the loss of Hector, listen and remember, he died the greatest of men, a thing made possible only by the coming of the Greeks. Had they stayed at home, all that glory would be hidden in Paris had he not wedded the daughter of Zeus. In short, Hector died gloriously because Hector does what you were supposed to do in war. Defend your homeland. Die for your people. Die for your family. Die for the things that you care about. The Greeks aren't doing any of that. Helen is not worth any of this shit. And as a consequence, their entire campaign is stupid. And the obvious connection that Euripides is making here is why in God's name would you go on this campaign to Sicily when your own borders need defending? The parallels between these two situations are brought out in striking detail here by Euripides. Cassandra is definitely pointing the finger, like Cassandra is Euripides' mouthpiece for pointing the finger at the Greeks and emphasizing to the Athenians, it would be better to stand here and defend our, our, our homeland, to defend our city, even if the Spartans were going to come and kill us. I would rather die before the walls of my city than go on some ridiculous campaign of conquest in an attempt of making things stronger to take it to the Spartans. See, that's why this whole thing is a stalemate, because at the end of the day, both the, Greek, both the Athenians and the Spartans can defend their homeland, but can't actually destroy the other city. And what Euripides is kind of emphasizing here is, that's the point. That's a good thing. That is the order of the universe. Because it is a great glory and honor to die defending your city. It would be better to die defending your city than to die in some pointless offensive conflict. To die trying to take over some land that never belonged to you in the first place. What was the point of the Trojan War? Cassandra emphasizes, Troy is the happier city here. Our city is more fortunate than the Greeks because the Greeks basically gambled away all of their cities and ended up watching them destroyed anyway, like Agamemnon's about to find out, um, all for the sake of the honor of a marriage that was a joke to begin with and a, the honor of a woman who was never honorable to begin with. There was no point in this offensive conflict. You want to talk about glory and war? We'll talk about glory and war. Look at Hector. He died gloriously because he defended his homeland. And notice that basically, when it comes right down to it, Cassandra is stressing he died the greatest of men, a thing made possible only by the coming of the Greeks. The Greeks enabled Hector to become the most glorious of soldiers. If, in fact, the Spartans invade Athens, let them, Euripides is saying. 
Let's go ahead and die at their sword. We will die honorably. We will die gloriously. We will die in the best possible situation you can die in. Namely, defending your homeland, defending your families, defending your wives and your children, defending your city, defending your borders. But if you go and attack, and not even attack the enemy, but attack somebody else in order to get stuff so that you can attack the enemy, you will just gamble away all these lives pointlessly, and it will all be a giant fiasco, even if you win. You will grant them glory, because the glory will always be on the side of the conquered in that sense. Now again, this sort of perspective is exactly the kind of moral flipping that the Greeks are so grumpy about from Socrates and from Plato, and this is exactly what gets Euripides in trouble as well. Um, again, and I've sort of poked around him a little bit, but in Nietzsche's The Birth of Tragedy, he emphasizes that this whole business of Euripidean tragedy is emphasizing a reversal of values. That the Greeks used to respect and adore strength of arms, glory in combat, no matter what the cause, you know, aggression in some sense. And it is Euripides who is switching the morality around, emphasizing instead a morality of the conquered, a morality of the defeated, a morality of defenders and the weak, a morality informed by women and by children and the suffering that they endure. Um, this is a new move on Euripides' part. This is why he is considered as innovative as he is. Usually Greek tragedy emphasizes, you know, glorious men like Oedipus who were really smart and really powerful but have some tragic flaw or oversight or fate screws them over in the end and as a consequence they're doomed. But wouldn't it have been great if they survived? Notice that Hecuba is not heroic in any point during this text. Instead, she is just tragic, just pathetic, just someone you want to feel compassion towards. Um, just as Cassandra here, likewise, is revealing sort of this flipping of morals, that there is no virtue in aggression or pride or conquest. There is no glory to be had in this pointless war. All of it is stupid, all of it is senseless, all of it is irrational, and to go to war over some pathetic, you know, cause like Helen's uh, uh, betrayal of Menelaus is just burying yourselves at the end of the day, just causing havoc in your own house. Um, so notice how Cassandra ultimately like concludes her whole speech as Talthibius like shows up and is sort of dragging her off. Um, she tears away her, her outfit and she tell, asks Talthibius, where is the commander's ship? Where do I embark? Watch for the wind. Don't wait to swell the sails bearing me away. Me, one of the three furies. Mother, goodbye. You must not cry. Darling land of my birth, farewell. And you, my brothers under the earth, and you, my father who gave us life, you'll not be waiting long for me. Down to the dead I go victorious, ruining the house of Atreus that ruined us. Notice Cassandra's comparison of herself to a fury. The Furies are the legendary monsters from Hades who seek out vengeance when the gods are betrayed. They are spirits of, of vengeance, and they are some of the most horrifying monsters in the entire Greek universe. Um, Cassandra basically compares herself to a Fury because she, too, sees herself as a spirit of vengeance, as an unstoppable force of destruction in Agamemnon's household to avenge the household that Agamemnon destroyed, her own, Priam's. Um, this is only appropriate for Cassandra. This is only justice 
for Cassandra, and she revels in it. She eagerly gets on the ship, where so many of the other characters here are lamenting and mourning what is going to happen to them. Cassandra embraces her fate, is glad to be able to avenge her household. Uh, but let's move forward, because again, we're running out of time, and there's a lot to talk about here. The next character who gets kind of the whole speech and the whole treatment here is Andromache. Um, Andromache's speech is pathetic in the sense of inviting pathos, pathos being the Greek word for, like, emotion. Um, you can definitely feel compassion towards Andromache, for sure, especially because she is being carried off by Neoptolemus, Achilles' son, i.e. the man who murdered her husband will is the father of the man who will then go on to rape and enslave her. Um, so again, we see a truly horrible sort of ir irony to the, the proceedings here. Um, Andromache's fate is not, you know, at all one that she wants. Um, but the one thing she has going for her, and the one reason why Andromache is willing to go along with what the Greeks are doing is in order to save her son. Um, Hecuba emphasizes, you know, go along with them. Um, go along with what they want from you. Yes, I know that it's horrible that Neoptolemus is effectively going to rape you, but hold on and you can save your son's life. And she even emphasizes, you know, if you do this, you'll spread joy among your friends and render Troy a mighty service by bringing up this son of my son, whose issue may one day rebuild Ilium and make our city rise again. But literally moments after that, like the line after that, Talthibius comes in and announces your sons to be killed. Astyanax must be flung from the battlements of Troy. So while there is this glimmer of hope here, maybe Hector's son will be able to avenge Troy the way that like Orestes avenges the house of Agamemnon, notice that at the end, that's very quickly dashed, like immediately. This is smash cut, no, your son is about to get thrown off the battlements. Um, now, again, Andromache goes along with it because she wants her son to be buried properly. Burial is, again, hugely important. The treatment of the dead is hugely important, as we've seen with, you know, the body of Patroclus, the body of Hector, and the Iliad. Like, all of this is very important to the Greeks, so she is willing to play along if it means Astyanax gets a proper burial. And at the end of the day, he does. Like, we get this whole scene where Andromache sort of... Um, has entrusted uh, the body of Astyanax to, uh, to Hecuba, along with Hector's shield. And all of the women get together, and like the little bit of swag that they still have left, like tawdry little baubles or wildflowers that they picked off the fields of Ilium, or apparently this one tunic that somehow got overlooked in the Greek spoils, um, Hecuba manages to deck out Hector's son Astyanax and lay him on Hector's shield. And the significance here is kind of, again, heart-wrenching, but also really powerful. All of their hopes rested on Astyanax, lord of the city, you'll remember, because it was Hector who held all of their fates in their hands. With Astyanax's passing goes all of their hopes. So they bury him with whatever glorious finery they can. They honor him as much as is possible above themselves, above the survivors, above their other dead, Astyanax is laid on the shield of Hector, i.e. Hector's shield could not save him, but he symbolically is still protected by Hector in death. 
and he is adorned with all of the finery that they can muster in their horrifically destitute state at this point. Any jewelry they've managed to come to sort of like protect from the Greek eyes, any fine garments that they're wearing, which, you know, again, they're all wearing sort of like torn finery, we're, we're told. Um, Astyanax is buried with all of this. It's, again, heart-wrenching, but this is their hope. Their hope is dead, and they still bury their hope with him. Like, this is the best they can do. This is the greatest honor they can give. Hecuba even emphasizes at one point, despair is all that is left to her. So let her weep. Let her give up all of this. Let her succumb to these horrible things that have happened. But this one act of burying Astyanax properly serves as a kind of defiance. Um, this is the only thing these women can still do to sort of express themselves and glorify their lost homeland now that the Greeks are carrying them off to their enslavement and in many cases to their deaths. Um, so we're not going to dwell on Andromache any more than that. Like, it's truly awful and I definitely do not want to like downplay what's going on here. But I do really want to get to the business with Helen and Menelaus. Um, for a couple of reasons. First off, I want to emphasize that Helen is another character who's been radically changed by Euripides to suit his purposes here. Um, we are dealing definitely with a much less sympathetic Helen, surprising as that may be here, given how many of these other female characters are proving very sympathetic. But Helen is presented as a monster here, like unequivocally. You cannot sympathize with the Helen of the Trojan women. She is basically personally responsible for all the bad things that have happened at this point. Um, she's let out, and again, we're, we get this sort of stage direction, or at least Paul Roche uh, includes it. She has contrived to make the most of her appearance, despite, you know, again, being sort of, like, imprisoned and, you know, stripped of her finery. Um, Helen addresses Menelaus here. Like, Menelaus comes out to see what has happened to Helen. Obviously, they are appropriately married. He's going to bring her home now. But the question on Menelaus's mind is, what is he going to do with her? Uh, Menelaus is debating whether he's going to, you know, like, it's set in stone that he's going to take her back to Greece and then figure out what to do with her there. But the question in his mind is, is she going to be punished? Is, she, is he going to kill her for her crimes, for her infidelity? Or is he going to let her live and make her, make, make her into his wife again. And note that Hecuba is very firmly on team kill Helen. Uh, like, she is very much emphasizing that Helen has betrayed them uh, personally, Hecuba and the House of Priam. Helen has destroyed their household. Um, so she advises Menelaus, allow me to state the case against her. You have no idea of the havoc she has caused in Troy. My indictment, every item in it, without the slightest room for doubt, will call for her death. Um, but Menelaus is resistant to this. Again, you know, why would he take the word of all of these Trojan women? They were, you know, the wives and daughters and, you know, mothers of, of his enemies. Um, but even so, like, notice that Helen immediately starts to manipulate Menelaus. And the speech of Helen is absolutely diabolical here. Whether my arguments seem good or bad to you, Helen says, your response undoubtedly will be antagonistic. Like, Helen starts by playing the victim card. Like, oh, no matter what I say, it's not going to matter. You're not going to hear me out anyway. 
Um, nonetheless, knowing the kind of charges you will level at me, I shall rebut them point by point as if we were debating. In the first place, this woman here, meaning Hecuba, who gave birth to Paris, is the one who gave birth to all of our troubles. So immediately, Helen starts with, it's Paris's fault and it's Hecuba's fault for giving birth to Paris. The second cause of the ruin of Troy, and my ruin too, was old Priam who failed to kill the newborn brat, even though he had been warned in dreams that a firebrand, the future Alexander, would burn down Troy. So, first scapegoat, Hecuba, for giving birth to Paris. Second scapegoat, Priam, for not killing Paris when he had the chance. The fates warned him, and he did not kill his own son. Listen to what happened next, she says, and she describes the beauty contest of the three goddesses. Pallas Athena promised him conquest of Greece at the head of a Phrygian army. Hera promised that if Paris made her win, she would give him the whole kingdom of Asia and the farthest frontiers of Europe. But Aphrodite, expatiating on the marvels of my body, promised him exactly that if she came out on top in the contest of goddesses. Now consider the result, Helen goes on. The blessings heaped on Greece are incalculable. You are not slaves of a foreign power. You have not been ousted in battle, nor crushed beneath some imperial tyranny. But I, Helen, I, benefactor of Greece, have been ruined, sold for my beauty, and am being punished instead of being crowned with garlands. Notice how Helen twists this myth to her purposes here. If Athena was going to promise... Paris victory in combat and, prime, and Paris would like successfully overcome all of the Greeks and take them over, then you dodged a bullet when Paris picked me over, you know, Athena and Hera and their promises. He could have absolutely destroyed all of you and taken over your homelands. But no, I, Helen, am the savior of Greece. And notice her emphasis throughout is blaming everyone around her but herself. That is not the point you'll counter. Why did you elope from home? Why? Because of him! Call him Paris or Alexander or what you will, the spellbinding son of this Hecuba. He came here with no mean goddess in his wake, while you, Menelaus, my husband, you criminally left him in your palace, took off from home and sailed away to Crete. Like, Menelaus is like, okay, defend yourself. And Helen's response is, it's your fault that I went away with Paris. Menelaus, you left me alone with him, and with Aphrodite they were unstoppable. How could I have possibly prevented him from carrying me off? Now notice, like, Helena has successfully blamed everyone but herself here. She blames Priam and Hecuba for not putting a stop to Paris's activities. She blames Aphrodite the goddess for sort of, like, carrying her off. She blames Paris. She blames Menelaus himself for this. And for her own purposes, she calls herself the benefactor of Greece, the savior of Greece. Because she ended up being the sacrifice to the gods, so the Greeks didn't get taken over by Hera or Athena. And on the one hand, this does make a certain degree of sense. Like, remember way back in the Iliad, when Priam and Helen are talking, like, Priam emphasizes, this is not your fault, this is the gods' doing. There was truth to that. But the important thing that I emphasized then, and that I emphasize again here now especially, is that while it isn't entirely Helen's fault, the point is not to sort of excuse yourself for it. Helen in Homer was very much self-deprecating. She blamed herself. She wished she had never been born. She accuses herself of all of this horrible stuff, and Priam is telling her it's not your fault to try and get her out of her own head. Here, Helen is in this sort of narcissistic 
total denial of responsibility. Where Helen in Homer is self-destructive, Helen in Euripides is just a straight-up perfidious manipulative monster. She is absolutely willing to do whatever it takes to get her way. And Hecuba draws attention to this. You know, Helen says, oh, I could never escape. Every time that I tried, they, like, brought me back. Hecuba responds in exactly the opposite. Where were you when you were trying to escape? Where, like, I offered many times to help you get out of the city, to get you to the Greek line so they could all leave home, and you refused to. So notice some of the accusations that Hecuba levels on her. Nobody with sense believes you, she says. As to Aphrodite, you tell us that she came to Menelaus's palace with my son? Don't make us laugh. As if she couldn't transport you and your whole town of Emicle to Ilium while remaining blissfully in heaven. My son enjoyed good looks beyond compare. It was your itch for him that you revamped into Aphrodite. When men make fools of themselves, it's always Aphrodite. The very name of the goddess spells mindless slavery. So when you saw my son in his exotic garb, dripping in gold, you were stunned and lost your head. There was nothing like it in dull old Argos. Quitting Sparta for a Phrygian town, you imagined rivers of gold that you could wallow in. The palace of Menelaus could not contain your impudent drive for luxury. Yet my son, you say, had to drag you away by force? Really? Who in Sparta saw this happening? How loud did you cry out? The young man Castor was there, his twin brother too, not yet caught up among the stars. And so you arrive at Troy. The Argives hot on your tracks, and the murderous clash of arms begins. Each time there was news of a win for Menelaus, you'd praise him to the skies to annoy my son and prove how superior Menelaus was in bed. Each time the Trojans gained the upper hand, where what was Menelaus? Nothing. In this way, however, fortune veered, and with no regard to morals, you were always on the winning side. Apparently, Hecuba has seen Helen. And on the one hand, she asks, where was all of your protest back when Paris was supposedly carrying you off? You supposedly have witnesses who say that you were trying to escape Troy. Okay, great. Were there witnesses who saw you resisting Paris as he carried you off? Or were you, in fact, gold digging? Were you, in fact, more enticed by Paris's good looks and Paris's promise of wealth than you were by Menelaus, your own husband? Now, admittedly, you could blame Hecuba. You could say, you know, you're just pointing fingers, too. You're refusing to accept your part of the blame here. But notice Hecuba brings up one last damning argument here. First, she says, you know, why didn't you, you know, try and commit suicide? Why didn't you come to me to help you? Why didn't you take advantage of the offer that I gave you? But no, she says, this wasn't to your taste. You luxuriated in Alexander's palace. You basked in the obsequiousness of us Orientals. It was a big thing for you. And all the time you had the gall to deck yourself out and parade in broad day by your husband's side. You, you disreputable trollop. Not insolence, but humility should have been your move. You should have come cringing with shaven head, dressed in rags, and trembling with compunction for all your shameless past. The crux of my indictment, Menelaus, is cap Greece's triumph with a crown of glory, set a precedent by law, death to every wife unfaithful to her spouse. Now, on the one hand, we might have some questions. When Hecuba suggests that Helen should commit suicide, we would be right to be like, whoa, hold on, back it up. Likewise, when Hecuba stresses, you know, we should absolutely punish her for her infidelity by killing her, by having her stoned. Capital punishment for adulterous women. We should also be like, whoa, hold on, back it up. 
Are we also going to be doing the same thing for men? If not, maybe we should, like, hold on before we do this. Some of this is definitely Euripides drawing from his own culture. Athenians were particularly rough on women who were unfaithful to their husbands. Um, but notice, as far as Hecuba is concerned, she has more than abundant evidence to prove that Helen was a bad wife here. As much as Helen makes out, oh no, I was carried away by Paris. I barely had anything to do with the matter. Aphrodite carried me off, and I resisted the whole way, and I tried to escape many times. And Hecuba is like, yeah, where, where were you when I was offering to help you? Where were you, you know, when Menelaus was in fact winning and you kept insulting Paris, but the minute that Paris started winning, you were like right on over to his side. Hecuba paints this picture of Helen as this totally fair-weather friend, this absolutely manipulative woman who is always trying to curry favor with whoever seems to be powerful at the moment. Helen, as far as Euripides portrays her, is completely unfaithful. Unfaithfulness is her defining characteristic. She switches sides at the drop of a hat for the sake of her own convenience, and when she is living it up, she is living it up insolently basking in her riches, sitting beside Paris and glorying in her good treatment. Helen is the worst, as Hecuba paints her here. And the price that she asks here, that Menelaus does in fact kill her, is justice. Like, justice on a higher level than just, you know, in, like, unfaithful wives should be punished, but justice on this sort of true heroic level, on this absolute level. She is a terrible person, and death is too good for her, in short, is what Hecuba is telling us. Much as the particular prescriptions that she makes might seem extreme to us, what Hecuba is basically asking for is a humble Helen, the one we saw in Homer. Again, not insolence, but humility should have been your mood, she tells us. That's the crux of what she's arguing. Because Helen was anything but humble, because Helen destroyed two entire nations with her complete lack of care for, you know, the good of the men and women around her, because Helen was willing to do anything for number one, including destroying entire cities, that's why Helen deserves to die. And honestly, I'm kind of sympathetic to Hecuba here. Not just because Euripides is going well out of his way to make Hecuba very sympathetic throughout this entire play, but when faced with the two arguments and the evidences that are presented, yeah, if Helen wasn't acting the way that she was in Homer, which is like the only possible way that Helen can be sympathetic or understanding here, if she was in fact gloating, lording it over Paris when Menelaus is, victim, is winning, and then, like, clinging to Paris with all her might whenever the Trojans seem to be on the offensive, that's really crappy behavior. And she is a terrible person. But notice that the upshot of this whole interaction between Helen and Hecuba and Menelaus is ultimately Menelaus is going to make the same mistake again. Like, Hecuba advises uh, Menelaus, kill her on the spot. You know, set a precedent by law, and it seems even that Menelaus is willing to agree. Go, get ready to be stoned, he says to Helen. But in actuality, Menelaus is saying, go get on the ship. As much as Menelaus ends with, let death be your lesson for disgracing me, it seems that he's got it. It seems that Hecuba has convinced him. It seems that he's going to kill Helen on the spot. Helen turns it around. 
I clasp your knees and beg you, don't stamp me with a crime that came from heaven. Forgive me. Do not kill me. Hecuba responds, do not betray your allies whom she slaughtered. Do not, I beg you, for them and their children's sake. Hecuba is saying, you know, think of all of the people who died, all of the soldiers on the Greek side, all the soldiers on the Trojan side. Think of how much horror she has caused and how much dishonor you do to those dead men by letting her go. And Menelaus responds, that's enough, old woman. She means nothing to me. Men, take her to the galleys. That This is a command. Prepare her for the crossing. In short, Helen has seduced him again. Helen has overcome Menelaus's resistance, has overcome Hecuba's good arguments, has overcome Menelaus's good sense, and once again is throwing a middle finger to the gods. Like, once again, all of these bodies lie in unrest because of Helen's horrible behavior. Hecuba draws attention to it, asks for justice, and Menelaus responds with, but she's hot. And Hecuba even asks, all right, well, at least make sure her galley is not the same as yours. Have her ride on a different boat so you won't be tempted by her, so there's still some chance that there will be justice served when she gets back to Sparta. But as we well know, like Menelaus is willing to agree with this, okay, we'll put them on a different ship, fine, whatever. Um, but nonetheless, we know how this turns out. We know that Helen makes it to Sparta safely. We know that Menelaus takes up with her, and we have seen her drugging the drinks when Telemachus comes to ask about Odysseus. Like, clearly Helen survives. Clearly Helen does not get the punishment that she deserves, as far as Euripides is placing it here. And some of that is because, you know, Homer has a very different take on Helen, but what is very much emphasized throughout this whole passage is just how stupid Menelaus is. That on the one hand, we have Hecuba the Manipulator, who has absolutely got him wrapped around her little finger in mere minutes of them being reunited. And on the other hand, Hecuba, the voice of tragedy, the voice of all of this suffering, the voice of a city that was destroyed by her awfulness. And Hecuba is ignored for the sake of, you know, hot girl is hot. This is what we are left with as a glimpse of the governing body here. Remember how it's Odysseus and Agamemnon and Neoptolemus making the decisions behind closed doors, people who we never get to see? Well, Menelaus would have been at that council. He is the one person we see who constitutes a Homeric hero, and what Euripides emphasizes about him is how friggin' dumb he is. How stupid his decisions are, how poorly motivated they are. How he is willing to let his dick dictate the way that he's going to decide. And how many people will suffer as a consequence. How much dishonor to the gods will occur as a result. Alcibiades is hot. And a lot of the people in the Demos are making their decisions based on the fact that they want to get with him. And Euripides knows this. And is emphasizing here, do not let the thing between your legs do the thinking for you. Do not let demagoguery and like pointless argumentation and clever words win the day over you, the same way that Helen is winning over Menelaus here. Do not make some stupid decision, some self-destructive decision on the grounds of what you want in a moment without seeing the foresight of what's going to come down the pike. Euripides is saying these governing bodies these demos, this democracy, should not be swayed by something so pointless, so frivolous, so stupid, and so 
temporarily attractive. Do not sacrifice the future for the sake of a passing pleasure of some kind. Now the last thing that Hecuba really has to condemn here are the gods. In vain we have slaughtered our Hecatomb, she says, and over and over again we see Hecuba asking herself, why have the gods let this happen? Why have the gods done this to us, despite all that we have done for them? The picture that we get is of a truly unfair, unjust world here. Villains and monsters survive to fight another day and cause more havoc, while perfectly good people are victimized for no more reason than because the powerful decide to do so for stupid, stupid reasons that will themselves cause destruction in the end. Perhaps the theme of all of this, perhaps the best encapsulation, is where Hecuba finally sort of sums this all up. What a fool that mortal is who rests complacent in prosperity. Fortune is the prey of whims and like a maniac turns somersaults. No man for long escapes her jolts. The message here is clear. Yes, we're doing okay. The Spartans are not attacking. Don't get cocky. Don't practice hubris. Don't make a stupid decision based on some temporary desire. Protect your homeland. That's what matters. Protect your womenfolk. That's what matters. Protect those who cannot protect themselves. That's what matters. And at the end of the day, Euripides is not straying far from the Homeric message. This is what Sarpedon was talking about in his speech to Glaucus. This is why Hector is such an important hero. This is exactly the same sort of lamentation that we see at the end of the Iliad. Euripides isn't changing it up that much. Euripides is invoking the deep themes of Homer, not the superficial trappings. And it ends in much the same way that Homer does. Hecuba dies. They stand there watching Troy burn. And in case you're not aware of the mechanics here, again, there are no fancy scenes. There are no fancy backdrops or props. There is no scene of Troy burning here. The way that the Greek theater usually plays a scene like this is the cast, the characters, look out and see this happening on the distant plane. So chances are... There are people in the audience holding torches, and Hecuba and the other women are looking out at the audience as though it is Troy burning. This message cannot be clearer, and Euripides is not being subtle here. When Hecuba is walking towards the burning city of Troy, she is walking towards the audience as she dies. Euripides is drawing a very clear line between the people of Athens seated in the amphitheater and the city of Troy destroyed by the folly and stupidity of all of these men and their poorly, dis uh, poorly made decisions. Euripides is saying very clearly, this is you. This is happening to you next. You want to follow Alcibiades on his ridiculous foray? Guess what's going to happen? Your city will burn. You are the women of Troy. You are the city of Troy burning. You are the lost legacy of heroes squandered pointlessly over stupid, petty pride reasons. You can do better than this, Euripides is saying. And he is being extremely blunt, extremely forward, even as he wields irony to do the job. It's a masterpiece.
much as it is rough to read, much as it is painfully, repetitively tragic and gloomy and fatalistic, the message is very clear, very pointed, and not to be confused. The Greeks are screwing themselves right here, are destroying themselves. And Euripides is offering them this last chance, this last warning before they do the job entirely. And notice that he's contracting Homer to do this. Their shared experience, their shared knowledge of the myth, Euripides is desperately trying to invoke Homer for these political reasons to save them from themselves. Homer's values are being invoked here by Euripides. He is reminding them, this is what Homer was writing about. Not glory in war, but the destruction that war causes. Not the honor that can be had in a glorious combat, but rather all of the lives destroyed by pointless combat. You are on the verge of repeating history, of making the same stupid mistake. And Euripides is invoking the legacy of Homer. This is what Homer can do. This is what Homer is frequently contracted to do. When, you know, empires go to war for stupid reasons, you better believe that people are going to bring up Homer and remind them, look at what happens when you do this. Engage in pointlessly aggressive conflicts. Engage in wars over stupid reasons. Let pride decide the day instead of concern and compassion for the people who will in fact suffer as a result of your actions and decisions. You can do better. You can be better. Don't settle for less. Next time we're going to look at the way that Troy, or Troy the Trojan War and Homer generally is sort of carried into the Roman world and how they are going to interpret and understand their legacy as a consequence of this. Um, I hope that you have gotten through with a minimum of horror and depression our discussion of the Trojan Women today. Again, I do think it's a masterpiece. Every time I reread it, I'm more and more impressed by it. Um, so I hope that you gave it a chance, despite its darkness. Um, I look forward to talking to you about Rome and Homer's legacy in Rome in the coming lecture.